Welcome to Rich Conversations. Today on the show, we welcome, for the third time, Tim James, paleontologist, archaeologist, and man of many talents and skills. I always get so giddy before recording with Tim because he's so insightful and he's so engaging and fun. And afterwards, I always feel more enlightened about our relationship with the natural world and also like a clear vision of the future through our understanding, through scientific research and studying. It's so exciting to me. In this episode, we, we cover many topics. Uh, some of them include my traveling, where when I travel, I like going to archaeological sites or natural history museums. So I went to Mexico City and visited the Pyramid of the Sun and the Pyramid of the Moon. Tim shared with me some information and history about that site. I'm also going to Miami. I'm traveling to Miami, and Tim shared with me that recently they found an indigenous site, downtown Miami. So I'm going to travel out there, see, uh, see if I can find anything. I don't know how uh, covered up it is or, or if they have any displays or exhibits on it yet. That will be quite interesting. Excited for that. We talk about many different things um, in the Amazon and other covered areas of the world using LIDAR and technologies to find remains of human structures of past populations. Very interesting. The permafrost is melting and it would be advantageous for our species to study the uh, fast deteriorating biological remains and cultural artifacts that are being revealed with uh, the melting of the permafrost. So Tim shares about that. Dating and sexual selection, uh, in particular with, with apps and the facial structures, the more attractive ones uh, moving forward and breeding where we'll have more disarming facial features with our species in the future. Good, great conversation. But human evolution too, and, and Homo sapiens, and how we differed from other um, kind of human species. Really interesting conversation. Again, it's always insightful and enlightening with Tim. Always enjoy his presence and conversation. Before the conversation in uh, this episode, I went to the Art Institute of Chicago. And I hung out in the member lounge and thought I would just open up my notebook and share things that I've written. Because I'll go to places and I'll just take my notebook and just write, just write. And people ask what I'm writing and, you know, I'll share it. So I thought it'd be a fun kind of little uh, exercise to just share some things I've written down and where my head was at at the time and where it's at now and how... Um, I've used it and have kind of worked with it to improve the things that I'm doing in life itself. So uh, hope you enjoy that as well. Fun episode. Again, so excited to share this. Let's begin. I'm in the member lounge at the Art Institute of Chicago, and it is mid-April, but
but it feels like summer. It's 79 degrees outside and sunny and the energy is incredible. I'm a big fan of summer in April. <laughs> so far. A little too hot, actually. That's the thing about Chicago is uh, once the weather gets pretty warm, people <laughs> complain that it's too warm. Then when it's too cold, people complain it's too cold. Humans are never satisfied, are they? But uh, today, I'm coming here. It's a cool space. They just reopened this, the member lounge. They used to have it kind of on the ground level, and they used to have this cafe area that would go outside, and there'd be this, like, fountain and these uh, umbrellas and tables and chairs. It was really cool. This is more, um, that had more of a, you know, 19th century impression, whereas this feels definitely more contemporary. The white, the gray, the wood, the d minimal design. But how about this? This view is pretty great. Just a massive view of Michigan Avenue and the buildings and architecture. Really cool. So I'm, uh, this, this opened maybe like three weeks ago, so I'm, you know, testing it out. Having a lot of fun in the meantime, you know, free coffee, tea, pretty great. Today I thought we would spontaneously just go through some notes in my notebook, some observations. Now I take this notebook with me everywhere. I travel with notebooks all the time, whether it's this size, whether it's a smaller size. Uh, in the morning, I have one that's is quite large that I journal in, and I just go around, make observations and notes. I try to capture what is on my mind right now, immediately, because if I don't write it down, I'm going to forget it. And something that kind of disappoints me about living in the time that we live in, the 21st century, is that I can't, I can't record my actual thought in my head, right? I have to physically write it down. The technology isn't there yet. It's the bane of my existence. I would love to um, be able to look at something and then like capture it with my mind and have it go to like a central storage place externally. Some people are afraid of that, but I just see beauty everywhere and I think every action I take, every moment I experience is something significant because it's, it's quite miraculous that we're living here right now on planet Earth. It's incredible. Why would you not want to celebrate that all the time? human experience. Anyways, let's go into the notebook. Let's open it to a random page and see what we, what we wrote down. <laughs> okay. This is, uh, <laughs> okay, this is January 31st and February 2nd. All right, so here's a little note. We wrote, 
we only know if we test. And this is referring to kind of digital media, marketing. That's kind of an area I struggle with, is marketing. I'm trying to get better at it. Um, to me, it's the organization of it all. I feel kind of overwhelmed and it's, it's so tedious. You know, you don't really think about how you have to go through and then organize, say, in, in folders, a picture and, and themes and you know you should like post something for marketing purposes, but from the knowing to the actual completion of it, that's where I kind of get lost, kind of the how, anyways. And I can overthink it quite a bit. So I wrote down, we only know if we test. Here's something I also wrote. It's all about file organization. This is kind of my um, central thesis for living in the 21st century. I don't know, that's kind of a, that's quite a statement. I would say this is certainly one of the things. We live in this world now, we live in two worlds now, a physical world and a digital world. And one must navigate both spaces with grace and humility and a sense of humor and uh, fun, joy, right? And I'm fine, this is, just goes back to what we just discussed, right? We only know if we test and um, organizing the how, right? File organization is such a underrated skill to possess. So I've, I've done pretty well video-wise and the things that, that we record for the podcast and um, other people's content that I help create. And even my own with photos. And I, I also take photographs. Do people say photographs anymore? Of each notebook page and I upload it to a file in the cloud. And I think being able to, one, back up your physical material and then organize it in a way that's easily accessible is an incredible skill and talent that people don't talk about enough right now, but I'm sure more and more people will discuss it in the future. Okay. Here's a, here's a good one. Independent creators are data analysts. <laughs> I had a conversation with uh, the guys in Bone Lane about this, and this is something they said: is like, not a lot of people understand that like being an independent artist is really about being a data analyst. You know, you put stuff out, you observe, okay, what's the data say? What is the measurables? 
I think that's quite interesting because when people think of creators, they think of, maybe this is me kind of projecting, but kind of aloof, abstract, um, maybe sometimes flamboyant, uh, aloof, and not necessarily um, disciplined and data-driven. So it's an interesting contradiction, right? Okay, let's go to the next page. This is February 2nd. Met with my tax guy. I actually, I scheduled, I thought it was February 1st. So February 1st, I show up to the meeting. I got all my stuff ready and I go on the Zoom meeting and it's like, oh, your host isn't here yet. It took me about five minutes to then realize, oh, it's tomorrow. <laughs> but the good thing is I uploaded all my files then on time. That's gotta be something that drives tax preparers nuts is people not uploading their files at according to the guidelines, which is at least 48 hours in advance so that they can look through them and then kind of, you know, mentally or, or actually physically place them in places they need to um, put them to prepare. This was a huge day. This was probably one of the most. This was the most monumental day of 2023 for me so far. And there's a number of reasons why, but I changed the name of my company. I hated it. I hated the name before. It was three words. And I think that's terrible to have three words. So I shortened it to one, a new word that I made up. And we filed the paperwork during our meeting and took care of it. But just something so simple like that provided so much clarity. Everything just became, just kind of like, just lined up. And it's interesting how when something like that happens, your mind just starts to organize itself with such little effort. It's amazing. So change the name, now all of a sudden, everything is kind of clear and the path is beautiful. I have no other words to say, to insert there. Um, yeah, so we changed the name. I went for a walk. And then on this walk, I just, all of a sudden, things just started falling into place and these realizations were happening. A big realization I haven't really disclosed yet. The mind is so interesting. It is all a matter of the mind. The mind. I've been working on redesigning my mind since September. And it's remarkable. Everything in life, everything of your life, say, and your external circumstances is all a product of your mind. 
the external reflects the internal. And so your mind is the source of, of everything you experience. So you need to make sure that it's, it's operating in its most optimal way, like the best it can with the knowledge that we know about human psychology and history. Like you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You can learn from other people and then kind of mold and shape your mind how you want it to operate based on the results you want or the external circumstances. So that's been uh, a work in progress. And this day, February 2nd, was really the day that I realized all that work I had been doing until this point, like, worked, right? You do something daily and it's tedious and it's annoying. Well, it can be annoying. I suppose the trick is to enjoy it, enjoy the process. But you're going through this process, this learning, this growing process, and it can be frustrating because you want the results immediately, of course. But you just got to put your head down and do it. And then there's these moments like this where everything just falls into place and you're, everything just is beautiful then. So I've been building on top of that but this was certainly the day. Here's some other notes I wrote. A wave of AI is coming. It's already here, but what I mean is that AI will be implemented more and more into our daily lives and it will be just, you'll be unable to separate it and um, experience it as a part of your life. One of my friends changed his opinion on AI recently. So I wrote that, flipped completely on AI. I wrote, talk to a lot of people in AI and science. And so we had matzah on the podcast to talk about AI and physics. So that was one of the results from this, the actions that we took. Uh, I wrote barefoot, socks, and shoes. So this is, this is when I was in the Bone Lane studio and I thought it was interesting. I observed that I wear shoes all the time except when I'm sleeping. To me, there's like a psychology behind it where I have like indoor shoes, and outdoor shoes and then I'll have indoor athletic shoes and then outdoor athletic shoes outdoor meaning outside of my apartment door <laughs> and they're, they're actually the same pairs I buy multiple ones uh, and I wear those inside so I'll bring my indoor shoes over <laughs> over to places so we're in the studio I'm wearing uh, shoes. Sammy is barefoot. 
and uh, Bones is wearing socks. And I thought that was interesting. The three of us are all wearing different or not wearing, like our, our foot, our, what do you call it, our appendage. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this was uh, a good day. I think this might have been February 3rd, actually. I, I've been getting better at dating and locating these. I'll write down the date. I'll do like a slash in the notebook, date it where I'm at. So I did write in the studio here, but I didn't date it. Unless if it's the same date. Anyways, here's some, uh, yeah. Now we get on a roll. Here's a note I wrote. Need to figure it out, period. Clear system data on phones. Yeah, that's something I need to do yet. Art and science together. Merge art and science together. Input, output. Colder or warmer. <laughs> Benjamin Clementine. Look for kinds of sounds you like. For the future. Here's a good one. Understanding and being okay with what you are. A human being living with acceptance. Some of these can be pretty deep. Other ones are very abstract. It's kind of coordinated or like coded where only I can really understand some of these things because I don't get too specific but I know personally. All right, here's something I wrote. It's the caffeine, cut back, but how? Change the lighting. <laughs> uh, you bond because you experience a culture. This is something I wrote in regard to us gonna go to Mexico City coming up uh, when this was written and it's interesting how when you travel somewhere you create kind of a, a bond with that place and that culture and if there are people around say you, you meet other people that also took a trip to this place or live there for a little bit there's this initial or like automatic bond already. And I think that's a really cool thing. But these are just some things I wrote down and just ideas they um, I capture what's in my head. And then we review them at a later point in time. The area of improvement is to review this more consistently and build it into my week, set aside a time, and just go through these. 
something I struggle with is these little things. These little, little things, these tedious things. Because what I want to do is just go out and have adventures all the time. You know, and uh, it's the details, the details. So that was our nope notes review. <laughs> All right, we are here with Tim James, paleontologist, archaeologist, just a man of many talents, joining us from, are you in Los Angeles right now? Yeah, I'm in the middle of downtown LA. I'm uh, right off of Spring Street, which was historically Los Angeles's Wall Street. Now it's like EDM clubs and uh, sushi restaurants. Mm. What, what kind of building are you in right now? Oh, it's cool. So it's a converted loft, um, but it was a bank built in 1922. And it was built uh, literally for finance bankers. And then, of course, you know, it got abandoned. And then I think they restored it sometime in the early 2000s. And uh, yeah, now this is my apartment. We got a cool. Wait, loft. So that's your apartment? Yeah, dude. Do you want to see the city view? Yeah, let's let's check it out. Let me see if I uh, I can actually, yeah. Oh, dude. Yeah, how about that, bro? Wow. I know, that's that's California, right at your footsteps, or fingertips or whatever. But yeah, so I've been wow. uh, I've been happy, man. Like, enjoying the West Coast. How's, yeah, so uh, it's, it's uh, still snowing it, out there in Chicago? Dude, it's cold. It's like 35 degrees. The sun is out today, which is great. It rained yesterday. Uh, around this time of the year, Chicago stays between like 25 and 50 degrees and gray for like two or three months. <laughs> so I went to Mexico City and then uh, I got a trip to Miami coming up. So I'm exploring hey. the warm weather areas. <laughs> hey, Miami's fun. I, I was there uh, last summer. Make sure you go to Brickle and go grab yourself some uh, Argentinian empanadas. You go see the Miami Circle while you're down there. One of the coolest archaeological sites in the country. People don't even know it's there. Wait, so this will be my third time in Miami. Every time I go, I go to the Frost Museum. And nice. they have, uh, I just love it there. You have spectacular views. And they have um, the paleontology of like the, the fauna that used to live in Florida. So these big like saber-toothed cats and it's like oh man it's so cool you said brickle though there's this there's a site yeah. over there it was it a there was a giant uh indigenous village site uh it was the T tequesta people uh i believe but they had a massive village site right at the heart of the miami river and right where it entered into um biscayne bay and that was their main village site. And there's actually still remnants of that village site that have been preserved, even though that area is smack dab in the center of Brickle in downtown Miami. So Miami has actually been one of the premiering cities that has uh, led the way when it comes to cultural resource management. They were doing this way back in the 80s. So, you know, uh, Miami actually has a really rich cultural heritage. If you walk around, for example, there's a Trader Joe's right in downtown Miami. There's actually preserved indigenous post holes that the indigenous people made to create a uh, 
kind of boardwalk-like society. And what they did is they put conch shells on the end of these long poles and they just stabbed them into the ground over and over and over again and utilized them as drills until they made the post holes because they didn't have any access to things like, uh, you know, rocks or any lithic resources. So they use shells for everything. But the city of Miami has actually done a phenomenal job preserving some of those sites all over the downtown area. So if you know where to look, some, uh, you know, piece of dirty glass on the ground might actually be hiding an archaeological site, much like Europe. Huh. Interesting. That's going to yeah. give me some more stuff to do in Miami. Uh, I'm looking for more different stuff. I'm not much of a beach guy. Uh, I like exploring just the cultural resources of every city and the people and just the vibe. I love that. Well, they've done that shit. Well, they've done studies and uh, the people who are uh, of Cuban descent in Miami are actually closely related to the indigenous group that initially occupied the Miami area. So those people were actually taken by the Spanish and then sent to Cuba. So unlike a lot of major American cities, some of mm -hmm. the main population centers in Miami are actually related to uh, are, have a direct connection with their indigenous population. Fascinating. Really? That is interesting. Yeah. So, okay. So it's been a while since you've been on. As. You're, I know you live in LA. Where else have you been? Uh, dude, I've been all over the place. I worked in Colorado. Um, I worked in New Mexico. Let's see. I was in Virginia. I worked on a Civil War battlefield outside of Richmond. And I worked on some Cherokee sites in North Carolina. And uh, since then, I've just been back here in L.A., but I've been working all over California, you know, up in the desert, up in the uh, Redwoods and the Sierras. So, you know, and down on the coast and in the middle of the cities, so, you know, everywhere, pretty much. I'm a busy guy these days. <laughs> you are. You have a particular set of skills. Why don't you uh, <laughs> reintroduce yourself a little bit for maybe viewers or listeners that that haven't listened to your previous episode your last one was fantastic the way you described your skills <laughs> i'm glad um i don't know i mean i i'm tim i'm a paleontologist i'm originally from new mexico i went to the university of new mexico uh in albuquerque but in a lot of ways uh you know i was trained in the indigenous styles of archaeology so, uh, you know, looking at archaeological resources and even paleontological resources through the eyes of indigenous communities and understanding first and foremost how working with those resources affects those communities as opposed to working with, uh, you know, just purely academics. So being in New Mexico and going to that university helped me develop a very strong foundation for the rest of my career. You know, from there, I went and I did internships all over the United States. So I've worked, dug up dinosaurs in Wyoming, used to be a museum curator in South Dakota. Um, you know, I, many of the Western states, you know, I've, I've swashbuckled with the buffalo, so to speak. So, you know, I, I do a lot of traveling. Um, but yeah, I do a lot of archaeology and paleontology. And frankly, I'm just really passionate about science communication. For me, I'd like to see a the brand new generation of people get involved with the field. And uh, if there's any way I can share how passionate I am about this, you know, research into the natural history world, you know, that's, that's all I'm looking to do really. So 
Yeah. Wow. I mean, I'm not great at describing myself, but yeah. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. And you are passionate about natural history and uh, science and understanding where the world has been. It can help us better understand where we're going and make decisions. And um, it's fantastic. <laughs> uh yeah, I was I was in, when I was in Mexico City, I went to two of the biggest things I wanted to do was go to the Natural History Museum there and uh also the pyramids in mm. Teotihuacan with the pyramid of the sun and the moon. Did sweet. you know they found uh human sacrifices all around the entire base of the pyramid of the sun? Aztec, uh, you know, soldiers actually went and uh, kidnapped Mayan citizens and then butchered them in sacrificial ways and then led their bodies all around the Pyramid of the Sun. It's actually a recent discovery last year. Well, yeah, pretty brutal. But yeah, I've always wanted to go to Mexico City. I've heard it's even bigger than New York. Like, it's just Dude, it's massive. huge. It's yeah. huge. Yeah, that's saying something. I mean, you're not a small city guy. You're in Chicago, you know. It's, it's yeah, not, yeah, yeah. It's not huge, but it's big. <laughs> it's huge. Like to get to like certain places, we're taking like three trains and a bus, two buses, two trains. Uh, wow. Yeah, really interesting. Um, How was the food there? You know, I'm sure the food was phenomenal. It's pretty good. I was staying with uh, uh, a friend's family, so. Like they cooked me meals like every single day. It was fantastic. And then we would go out to restaurants and they would tell me like, oh, try this right here and, you know, do this. And then oh, it was good. It was good. That's super cool, man. That's super cool. Yeah. I uh, really want to get out and see more of uh, Central America myself. I'm planning on doing a guest speaking tour in uh, Panama later on next year. Really? So. Yeah, I, I actually am now represented by a talent agency that specializes in archaeologists and paleontologists. And Dude, actually, that's fantastic. Uh, <laughs> and I can't say which cruise line yet, but it's it's one of the higher cruise lines. And they booked me as a guest speaker on like the entire Panama Canal cruise. So I'll be giving lectures on archaeology and paleontology and seeing seeing the world. You know, that's a new endeavor I've been trying out. Mm. It's so cool to see to see how you're able to take your knowledge and skills and combine them in ways to like seek other opportunities that interest you and that align with your overall vision and dream. It's really interesting to see. Oh, well, I'm glad. I mean, tell you the truth, man. I just get bored. Like I'm one of those <laughs> guys. Maybe I'm just really hard to please. Like you know, for me, getting my career in paleontology for the longest time, it was like a dog chasing a car, right? Yeah. You know, the dog does not accept expect to catch the fucking car. Like you don't expect to get the dream job that quickly, right? So now right. that I have it. Uh, Maybe I'm a little bored. You know? A little bored. <laughs> a little bored. It's time to chase something new. So, you know, for me, it's really nice now that I'm able to pay my bills working as a paleontologist to be able to look for different ways that I can utilize that information and that knowledge to, you know, open up different doors. 
You know, it, it, and in Los Angeles, this is a perfect town for that because you can be an actor, archaeologist, paleontologist, you know, ventriloquist or whatever, and nobody looks at you sideways. Huh. You just That's fit right in. Yeah. Tell me more about Los Angeles. What, what has it been like living there? Oh, man. I've adapted to the crushing pressure. <laughs> the pressure? The pressure. Uh, no. No, Los Angeles, it's a beautiful city. Um, you know, people for a major city are extremely friendly. We have fantastic weather. Um, you know, it's beautiful. It's also like the other side of it is like the apocalypse is always kind of happening outside. There's always like madness in every direction. But I don't know. There's an old uh, quote on Pershing Square that lake likens Los Angeles to being at the, uh, you know, ringside seats at the circus and i'd have to agree with that <laughs> so what do you what do you do in your downtime for fun um i like going to punk rock shows lately okay. i've been really into modern art of all things um yeah oh, i just found a really uh, deep rabbit hole into like picasso and uh you know some of the different you know painters uh uh represented within like cubism and you know, yeah stuff like that but that's just kind of a hobby i'm really into music uh you know all my roommates were all musicians all artists so i don't know man i've been painting going to museums going to the beach hiking like just living my best life i mean <laughs> it sure sounds like it <laughs> you can go in any direction and there's food halls there's like galleries yeah. there's pop-ups there's you know, there's everything. So for me, I'm just like living my big city life and having a good time, you know, doing a lot of writing. Uh, I'm working as a science journalist on the side now. So okay. every week I produce new stories. And yeah, I've been doing a lot of uh, acting too, believe it or not. So uh, I worked on like a commercial with this uh, NFL linebacker. His name was Sean Merriman. He was like, uh, "Oh, I know who he is." Yeah, yeah. He totally like. I didn't. I didn't know who he was until like <laughs> after the commercial. Like yeah. the whole time we're all hanging out and we're all breaking bread. Like I just thought he was an actor playing a linebacker. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, he was just hanging out with the rest of us, man. And I'm just working background. So I'm assuming if this guy's talking to me, he's also just working background. But no, it turns out that like used to play for the Chargers. Rams. Yeah, he was really good too. He was really good. I watched some of his tapes afterwards. And I was like blown away. <laughs> yeah, I've been doing that. I did like a K-pop music video. Um, I've done a bunch of game shows since then. I did like you Let's Make a Deal with Wayne Brady. Um, I did uh, uh, You Bet Your Life with Jay Leno. That's kind of cool. So yeah, I've just been kind of like expanding my uh, my horizons, man. Just kind of you are a true renaissance man. It's Hollywood right now. Uh, is there is there a dream archaeological or paleontology paleontological site in the world that would be like a dream to work on? Um, for me, if I got to get my hands on uh on anything that was egypt related i feel like that would be really cool getting to work especially in luxor um 
that would really be amazing because Luxor, you know, that's a Valley of Kings. And that was the first holy city on earth. So, you know, the temple structures that they have in that part of Egypt are really unlike anywhere else on earth. So getting to work in Egypt would really be a dream come true. But in college, my major wasn't archaeology and it wasn't paleontology. It was paleoanthropology. So if I had a dream site to work on, it would probably involve uh, hominids. Um, you know, whether that be Neanderthals or uh, Homo erectus or Australopithecines or anything like that, I'd just really love to get to work on anything paleoanthropologically related to us. Because uh, it's one thing to work on a fossil of a dinosaur, but to work on something that you have a direct, uh, you know, relationship with and is a predecessor of your own species, to me, it holds a certain level of significance that and a connection that's not necessarily there when you're digging up a dinosaur on that, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. Like the Rising Star Cave in uh, South Africa, for example. Like some yeah. of the uh, ar artifacts they found from, uh, I believe it was Homo Nialdi there. I mean, the field methods they, they used were brilliant. They, uh, they basically were able to find where certain parts of the artifacts, uh, not certain parts, certain parts of the skeleton had actually taponomically fell deeper into the cave. And they were able to process all of the sediment into the cave in order to save as much of that hominid as possible. And that's just really, you know, it goes to show that like Lee Berger and, you know, all of those African paleoanthropologists are really carving out amazing legacies right now. And I have a hard time sitting here in the West Coast, like, you know, just working on mammoth bones and working with Chumash artifacts, you know, watching all these new discoveries come out of, you know, Africa and Eurasia and, uh, you know, Jamaica, not Jamaica, but in Indonesia and Java and all these places, because I would love to get my hands on anything related to, you know, human evolution. That's always wow. been my interest. Yeah. It's part of the reason why I've studied elephants, because in a lot of ways, I feel like elephants are very similar to humans when it comes to their social structure, you know, some of their quote unquote cultures, you know, how they go to graveyards, how they, you know, have remembrance and, you know, how they actually different herds of elephants actually have different dialects and, you know, accents for different mm -hmm. regions. Yeah, you know, that's why I've studied them. But really, I'd love to be studying some uh, you know, early, early humans. Early Being, humans. Yeah. Like uh, the time in history that most interests me, maybe 50,000 years ago, because okay. at this time you had Homo erectus, you had um, Neanderthals, and you had the earliest Homo sapiens all coexisting in Europe at the same time. I, I would love to learn more about how those, uh, you know, different groups of hominids interacted with each other now just think about that time you know yeah. you think racism now is bad can you imagine if there's two other species of human coexisting in the same ground that you're trying to live on it's pretty wild so what's what's the consensus of how homo sapiens survived and the other ones didn't um I think a lot of paleoanthropologists would tell you that they uh, we kind of bred them into us, and we're smarter. I mean, light, and we're also, frankly, in my opinion, I think Homo sapiens, our main 
benefit was the fact that our facial muscles and our structures are designed to look somewhat pretty. You know, we're, we're supposed to be more charismatic than the other species of hominid. I think that really played to our advantage. I think essentially we outhunted, um, you know, outcompeted and interbred with uh, other hominid species. And essentially there really didn't, there wasn't much, you know, purebred, you know, Neanderthals or Homo erectus left afterwards. That would be my guess. You know, of course, it's a theory and every extinction, it's not, uh, you know, singular cause. It's always a culmination of events that leads to an extinction of a species. But to me, that would be my best guess. Yeah, we're mean, man. We're, Homo sapiens are not to be messed with. We're, we're, the, we're the winner. Man. We're the, yeah, I mean, I was thinking about up. that on the bus ride today. It's like how we just... You know, I'm so I'm taking the bus on Lakeshore Drive and then Michigan Avenue and just looking around all the buildings, all the construction, yeah. how humans are able to manipulate their environments to appease their goals or imaginations or shared visions. It's pretty fascinating. It's amazing, man. Like, <laughs> no we don't think worried. about that enough. Yeah, I mean, our colonies are bigger than even ant colonies. We blow them out of the water. Like, we're insane. No other animal, no other mammal even comes close to living in the density of proximity that we, it's nuts. It's like, you know, you have, there's us and then there's insects when it comes to our population density, and our built environment. Yeah. The only other animals that even come close to altering their environment as much as humans is actually beavers. Because beavers okay. and their constructions of dams actually really vastly alters an entire environmental landscape. And they're the only other species that probably has as much impact as humans. Or had uh -huh. before we hunted them all out. So how much do you think the human body has changed since the 50,000 years ago that you had mentioned? So the human body uh, has actually changed rapidly um, over time. In fact, forensic anthropologists have looked, uh, we used to have a grand standard of determining ancestry and race through looking at the skeleton of different people because different regions of the world used to have different skeletal aspects to their bodies. This was useful information. A lot of this data was collected from World War I and World War II because we had a lot of access to bones and bodies back then. Since World War I and II, our skeletal structure, you know, in all parts of the world has actually evolved and changed as a result of becoming a more homogenized culture. So just in the span of less than 100 years, our skeletal bone structure has changed immensely. So if you imagine that and you realize that like each different generation can see rapid changes and then you apply that to human history, uh, you can understand why some of the earliest Homo sapiens skeletons that have been found fossilized Homo sapiens from caves in Israel and Morocco dating to around 300,000 years ago. They actually show much larger and much more robust features. And in fact, looking at an endocast of the brains of these Homo sapiens will show that their brains were probably much more likely to be more aggressive and uh, more confrontational and less social than modern Homo sapiens. So over you know over three hundred thousands of years, uh, three hundred thousands, uh, 
300,000 years of human history, we've essentially gone from being the wild, uh, um, wild variety of homo sapiens to being the domesticated version of homo sapiens. Our bone structure has become less robust and instead our bodies have become more focused on our facial muscles and our general looks. So uh, essentially we're just becoming prettier, smaller and more social, which, e which with each coming generation, similar to how, you know, we work to breed cats or dogs, you know? We're just doing it ourselves. <laughs> through our that own is interesting. So then the question I would ask is with the introduction of, uh, you know, mobile devices, screens, how do you think the human body will be different 100 years from now? So that's a really great question. Um, I think the major changes of our human body won't necessarily come from our technology, but they'll come from the consequences of climate change. Um, we've actually looked at famine in the past. And part of the reason I'm actually a shorter guy is I looked at it in my genetic record. And it's because uh, if you have generations that starved, even the great grandparents who starved during childhood or uh, during their uh, teenage years, it can actually still affect the stature of their youth several generations onwards. Um, so that happened in my family with the potato famine in Ireland. So I would imagine that, you know, with our massive population, you know, and, and uh, you know, less water and less arable land for growing material, um, we would probably see the human stature somewhat shrink mm -hmm. a little more. Um, but who's to say, I mean, we could have new, uh, our new technology has also allowed us to have a social connection in a way never before seen. So what really, what I think is going to happen is through dating apps, we're going to see sexual selection go into overdrive. And we're really going to start to see, you know, different facial features, different body features that are more commonly, you know, pleasing to a lot of groups. Uh, you know, we might start to see those really represented more within uh, you know, each coming generation. But who knows? Uh, we're also expected to have a population decline now, like not, uh, not through uh, you know, violent means, they're just the boomer population is expected to die out in most countries. We're not seeing you know, new populations you know, fill them. So I don't know right. how that's gonna affect it. But I think technology will definitely play a part um, I'm more interested to see how, uh, you know, things like AI will affect, you know, uh, human culture because, you know, if we get an AI that's good enough to do people's work for them, um, what is that going to do for our societies? Because we, once we make that change, that's the, that's the first time that we've really created a bunch of extra time for our society to pull further stratify. Part of the reason why we have all these specialized trades now is because of the adoption of agriculture that allowed people to have extra time to look into different traits and different uh, skills and different hobbies. So I'm really interested to see, you know, once technology progresses a little bit further, you know, and, you know, less people are really needed to do a lot of major jobs. I'm interested to see how that affects art. I'm interested to see how that affects culture. Um, I don't know. Stuff like that.
Yeah, that is interesting. Go wait, go back to this dating dating app thing that you mentioned. I mean, for me, feature? this is just me. This is just okay. my stoner thoughts, right? Stoner thoughts of a scientist smoking a joint <laughs> and realizing, wow, you know, all of these people are choosing mates based on, you know, very superficial initial things. I'm sure if we continue doing that for several more generations we're going to start to see certain traits represented more than others, just because that really, you know, takes sexual selection and it goes from, you just have people to choose from in your general circle or your friend group or your town to having choice over the whole world. It's really going to, you know, I think it'll further change humanity. We're probably just going to see the human population just get more prettier and more domesticated as a result of this. Probably going to see more facial muscles, more uh you know desirable desirable features for different regions okay as you say facial muscles yeah like what i i know there's muscles in the face but is there is there They're a way to like express those muscles or something that oh, yeah. gets it into a more appealing exactly um it's not necessarily that, but it's just, you know, one of the, it's just one of the things that comes from like the general skeletal structure of the face. And yeah, it's just one of the things that, it, how do I say? It's how we emote. It's one of our emote. ways of emoting, right? So yeah. it's one of the things that's been evolving since, you know, Homo sapiens first came in, you know, to the group, because one of the best ways to disarm a, uh, you know, hostile individual is by reasoning with them and if you're more social and if you're have disarming features you're probably much more likely to persist and carry on your genes which is why we've seen this in the past but of course all of this is anecdotal i mean this is just me spitballing and thinking but i'm sure that'll have an effect i mean anything that we do that messes up uh maslow's hierarchy is going to have an effect huh how do you think AI would affect paleontology? I don't want to think about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I think it would be really great for um, looking at different fossil collections. Um, but most importantly, I'd love to see AI help aid the process in resurrecting mammoths and extinct species and helping to connect uh, you know, fragmented genetic code allow us to reconstruct that genetic code to uh you know put that into an embryo of an asian elephant reproduce a mammoth i'd love to see ai's aid with that um yeah i think ai would probably be really useful for paleontology might break down some phylogenic argument arguments that have been going on for generations might phylogenic nice. what is that word Oh, so phylogenies and paleontology are just really fancy way of saying the trees, you know, the different, you know, think of all of evolution as the tree of life. Mm -hmm. Phylogenies are branches of different animals' stories on that tree of life, right? So the yeah. T-Rex has a certain phylogeny that goes to all of its ancestors. So every animal that has a, uh, you know, uh, ancestor has phylogeny. You know, we were talking about human phyl yeah. phylogenies earlier by talking about extinct hominids. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> are there 
where do you think where do you think new answers will emerge out of in the world like answers to the past what areas of the world do you think they would emerge most likely from um well i know that the best technology we have in archaeology right now for uh, determining answers is coming uh from lidar surveys so the region of the world that has the best untapped discoveries is different from the region that can give us the best discoveries right because those are two different things. Wait, wait, wait. Go the world. Like so, so for what example, it, what about that again? So if we use ground penetrating radar in uh if we use LIDAR in the Amazon or mm. all over the world, if we're able to do LIDAR maps of the entire globe, then we'll be able to determine and find lost cities everywhere we look, pretty much. Because LIDAR is perfect for finding um, you know, human uh uh uh, manufactured uh, remains of uh, structures in uh, heavily wooded or even sand dune rich environments. But the place where we can find the most spectacular artifacts is not necessarily in the cities we find doing LIDAR surveys. It's in, in what I think should be a huge international push, and that's in the permafrost, which is rapidly melting. And the permafrost holds, you know, preserved uh, humans. It has preserved uh, art tools. It has preserved mammoths. It's got preserved cave bears. Cave bears. It's got a almost pristine record of the entire ice age within its, you know, boundaries. And part of the methane that we're seeing released into the Earth's atmosphere from the decay of the permafrost is a result of these biological material decaying. And I can't help but imagine that a lot of that material in the decaying permafrost is probably really invaluable artifacts that will never ever be seen again. So, you know, we really should be doing LIDAR surveys of all the unexplored portions of earth to determine where and when the extent of these massive population centers uh, were. And then we should be expanding um, research in the tundras. What I'd like to see happen uh, worldwide for you know really expanding archaeological resources is I'd like to see more countries institute uh, cultural resource management laws like we have in the United States. So I'd like to see more countries that before you build a skyscraper or subway, they actually have people go out and try to preserve the material there. Because if we had a global initiative to uh, preserve cultural material and fossils, in all developing countries and in all countries on, you know, on the UN, for example, we'd be able to see archeology span completely skyrocket with the amount of usable data. And it would preserve so much because, you know, all of these cities that are rapidly, you know, densifying and urbanizing, there's also layers and centuries of history underneath those cities that is oftentimes being completely destroyed. I mean, look at what Egypt's doing. They're building an entire another capital and they mm. haven't had very much cultural resource management done in the area where they're building the capital, but they're building an entire other new Cairo. Yeah. yeah. You have all of these examples going on across the world. So, you know, if we invested in LIDAR surveys, 
And then if we invested in, you know, looking in regions of the world where we might have non-renewable resources uh, that are rapidly being destroyed in archaeological uh, context. And then if we just actually looked at the way that we develop our cities uh, and our infrastructure in general and in ways that, you know, works with science as opposed to against it, you know, I think we could really see massive changes. And the more we understand our past, the more answers that gives us into addressing the problems of the future. So, you know, for me, I see it as a win-win. What's the process of LIDAR? And oh, what, so what's LIDAR, its range of capabilities? Yeah, so what LIDAR does is it sends uh, laser beams. You basically send a drone up into the air and what it does is it, conduct, it conducts a survey over an entire plot of land, basically just flies all the way around, just filling up the entire parcel. And what it does is it sends these laser beams down that hit the, uh, you know, the surface of the ground and then it sends that data back up. Essentially what that does is it makes all of the, uh, it allows you to peel all the vegetation off of the surface and just look at the ground disturbing, uh, the ground disturbances themselves. And oftentimes those ground disturbances represent uh, archeological feature features like terraces, um, cities, roads, uh, and any number of uh, important, you know, infrastructures for indigenous communities. And so that technology allows us to pretty much strip an entire rainforest without cutting down an entire tree. So it's, it's for like big stuff, not like some arrowheads in the ground, right? No, not okay. necessarily. No, no. What we still have for arrowheads in the ground is the same methods we've always used, sending a field yeah. technician out there to go uh, do a pedestrian survey. But who knows? Maybe we'll have a robot or a drone do it in the future, but I doubt it. I feel like that's more expensive than a tech. Yeah. <laughs> huh. What's, what's something coming up that you're looking forward to, dig, digging-wise? So I have a few projects going on right now. Um, until 2028, I'll be pretty busy with my current project. And so I'm not digging any per, anything per se. <laughs> but you, so you're thinking five years. You got five oh, years. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, I'm the lead paleontologist for the LA Metro subway construction. So we have a, you know, we have a long period of development before those subway tunnels are completed. So I'm not really looking at actually digging stuff out, but I'm looking at monitoring the construction of the excavation of these tunnels. And I'm anticipating finding lots of stuff. I wish I could say more about the stuff I've already found, but I'm contractually obligated and I can't. But yeah, so that's, that's my current job. So I, I couldn't be more excited. I mean, for me, <laughs> that's so excited. So the things that you were mentioning yeah. before about, yeah. you know, when you're developing, taking the time beforehand to see if there's any cultural significance or resources, just check it to make sure that's what you're doing in Los Angeles. Oh, absolutely. Wow. You know, and I'm happy to say that California actually leads the world when it comes to preserving our fossil heritage and our archaeological, archaeological heritage. So we actually work in direct communication with the tribes, developers, and the city. 
And we all work together to make sure that each project uh, is done lawfully, respectfully, and is able to preserve as much as the data as possible. You know, the city of Los Angeles and the state of California in general is really focused on preserving as much of our collective heritage as possible. Now, of course, sometimes this has, it's part of the reason why uh, housing is a little expensive here. We work under CEQA, which also has, you know, negative repercussions. I do believe that CEQA does need to be ratified, but I think the cultural resource legislation in CEQA, as well as the paleontology resource legislation, in fact, if anything, paleontology needs to be stronger. Both of those are very strong. But yeah, I'm working under, uh, you know, CEQA in California. But CEQA is just under, you know, that's the California Environmental Quality and Protection Act. Uh, and, uh, and the rest of the United States is actually protected under one of Nixon's uh, laws, believe it or not, uh, under the Environmental Protection Act. And Section 106 pres uh, preserves all artifacts across the country. Unfortunately, it does not preserve fossils. So yeah, um, oh, that is what I'm doing. I'm monitoring construction. I think we, we talked about this before, but uh, living here in the Midwest, there's not the fossil richness of other places. Is that because of the glaciers wiping things out? So there's a few different reasons for that. And I wouldn't necessarily say the Midwest is lacking in fossil richness. In fact, the dinosaurs maybe, well, right? Yeah. It is lacking some dinosaurs, but there's a reason for that. Well, much of the Midwest was actually covered by the Western Interior Seaway from the Middle Jurassic to the end of the Cretaceous period. So you were underwater during that time. So maybe you didn't have dinosaurs. You still can find dinosaurs. But areas like Kansas are very rich for pterosaur fossils, which are, you know, pteranodon comes from Kansas. Yeah, yeah you know, from the Niobrara Chalk, which is remains of the Western Interior Seaway. But you're right about the glaciation. The glaciation did destroy a lot of the uh, uh, sedimentary remains of uh, Appalachia, which would have been the continent um, that the uh, dinosaurs would have lived in in the, in the eastern side of the country. Because during the Cretaceous period, uh, the United States was split into two continents. Well, Laramidia being the western portion of the U.S., um, which is where T-Rex comes from. It's where Triceratops and Stegosaurus and all of the, our most the legends. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, South Dakota, Utah. I mean, all of these places were smack dab right on the coast of Laramidia. But we haven't had much fossils uh, from the Cretaceous or the Mesozoic era in the eastern part of the United States because of glaciation. Uh, and also it's, uh, you know, it's a mountainous environment. So the Appalachians would have still existed within the time of the dinosaurs. They would have been much higher. They would have been almost as tall as the Himalayas at that time. So, you know, you still had uh, this uh, preventing a lot of sedimentary uh, remains from being washed up. But every now and then dinosaurs are still known to be found in the Midwest. In fact, I think Missouri just named one of their first dinosaurs a hadrosaur. I think it was Missouriensis something. Interesting. So there are dinosaurs in the Midwest, but they are very, they're not as uh, common as in other parts. The, the Midwest, in my opinion, if you're going fossil hunting in the Midwest, 
you should be looking for Dunkleosthes in the Cleveland Shale. You know, there's no beating placoderm fishes. Those things are so cool. Or, you know, some of the, uh, you know, shales around Chicago are famous for the Tully Monster, which is the Illinois State Park. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. aware of that. And those are, uh, I got to say, they're pretty charismatic. I have a friend in Colorado who collects them. <laughs> nice. Wisconsin. Yeah. Uh, I'm from Wisconsin. A lot of woolly mammoth, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Michigan, yeah. Wisconsin. Uh, I think they've even found a decent amount of uh, Ice Age fossils in Chicago as well. So you will find that material. Uh, in yeah. fact, I worked with a uh, really well-preserved Macedon that was collected by the University of Michigan. And we actually had that same skeleton on display at the World Fossil Finders Museum in uh, South Dakota that I used to work on. Okay. So there, there was a lot of animals. Uh, you know, there was a lot of Ice Age flora and fauna in the uh, Ice Age for sure. Region. Yeah, yeah. Um, not a lot of dinosaurs, but that doesn't mean that you can't find some bones in a gravel pit, um, or it doesn't mean you can't find an isolated pocket every now and then. I think New Jersey just found a fossil deposit, and they have some dinosaur bones in Maryland as well. So you never know. Every now and then, crazy things can happen with geology. I mean, glaciers are not an exact science. They'll leave little tiny smidgens. I've always wanted to go prospecting in certain parts of Wisconsin that have some of those uh, remaining pieces of rocks that haven't been completely glaciated. I think it's by, uh, not Kenosha, but by uh, the Minnesota border. Okay. Mm -hmm. Southwestern, maybe a little bit south. been a while since i've been in wisconsin wisconsin um I like madison if one is visiting los angeles aside from la brea what are some other good paleontology sites oh that's a great question um we have a bunch here uh, i would recommend if you're not afraid to get out of the city and if you have the patience of a saint that allows you to sit on freeways for uh, an ungodly amount of time i have three recommendations Okay. My first would be uh, the Santa Barbara Museum of Natural History, just because it's a fantastic little museum. They have a great little paleontology display. And that's also where the pygmy mammoth that they found on Santa Rosa Island, that's where it's on display and it's completely mounted. It's really, it's a sight to behold. So the Santa Barbara Natural History Museum and Santa okay. Barbara, phenomenal. It's the American Riviera. And then you have the Raymond Alf Museum. So when you're at the Raymond Alf Museum, I highly recommend checking out Baby Joe. They have a Parasaurolophus, a baby Parasaurolophus. So that's a hadrosaur, duckbill dinosaur, but a crest on the back of its head. And this dinosaur is completely articulated. And they found it in the Kaparowitz in the same area I used to work on my second internship. And yeah, so a 77 million year old baby articulated uh, uh, Parasaurolophus skills. And I actually just got back from a world tour in Japan. So wow. I would highly recommend it. And then last but not least is the uh, Western Science Center. Now it's in Hemet, which is way the fuck out of the LA area. Um, it's out in what we call the Inland Empire, but it's really even farther out than that. It's in Riverside County. It's, it's out there. But this museum is phenomenal. They have some dinosaurs that they've dug out of New Mexico. They actually have multiple holotypes on display. 
So this museum has been responsible for finding new species of dinosaurs in New Mexico. Not only that, but they have all the remains from the Diamond Valley Project, which was the construction of this reservoir in Hemet that actually helped them find one of the largest Ice Age bone beds in all of California. And what they've done is uh, use that as an opportunity to build one of the best natural history museums in Southern California or in the country really. And uh, I highly recommend visiting. You can actually get collections tours and you know everything there is truly stunning. They have one of the best representations I've seen of uh, you know artifacts collected from our, uh, not artifacts, but fossils collected from our public lands. And their artifact displays are actually one of the only museums I've seen here in California that correctly illustrates how the indigenous peoples here actually lived. So I am a huge fan of the Western Science Center. They have helped me do a lot of work over the years since I've been here. I go there, I process sediments, been in the collections, you know, Leah Collins, their uh, curator and lab manager, she's just fantastic. And they're really leading the way when it comes to hiring Gen Z people and getting the youngest people involved yeah. in ecology. Not only that, but they're training, you know, high schoolers and even middle schoolers in field methods, in scientific, uh, you know, specimen processing and all of the different stuff that goes into working as a paleontologist. So when these kids graduate high school, they'll actually be trained in fossil preparation. They'll be trained in fossil prospect and they'll be ready to go into their careers with a background that many of their peers don't have. So wow. yeah, there are those, those three museums. I mean, they're really doing great, but the Western Science Center, fantastic. You can't go wrong with the New Mexico, uh, not the New Mexico, the Natural History Museum of LA County too. That's like, it's like the American Museum of the Smithsonian or the field. It's just, yeah, it's a lot like the field museum. Okay. It's, the field museum is a little bigger, but this one's, it's really good. Huh. Oh. Interesting. But you should also check out the Getty Villa while you're here, because what it is, is a reconstructed um, J. Paul Getty, who's this big oil magnet in Los Angeles. And of course, LA is, it was built off of oil. I mean, every, we've all seen the pictures of Venice Beach with all the oil derricks. Anyway, this guy used all this money to reconstruct um, a palace brick by brick from Herculaneum, you know, from Pompeii and Herculaneum. And he has a completely reconstructed Roman villa that houses uh, one of the best Mediterranean art collections in the world. So if you're ever in uh, Santa Monica or Pacific South Palisades and you want to feel like a Roman centurion, I highly recommend going to the Getty Villa and just standing in their garden. They've actually had paleobotanists come in and determine which plants they should plant in their garden to best represent what Romans would have had. In their house. So, wow. Yeah, that museum is really something else. I mean, yeah. you know, Los Angeles has the third most museums of any city on earth after uh, Moscow and Paris. So, you know, that you could really is a fun fact. Out. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that. It, of course, it's the entire LA metro area, of course, but still. And they're from all different topics from modern art to paleontology. Yeah. And everything in between. Well, this has been fantastic. Yeah. And, thanks uh, for having me, man. 
Well, one of my my favorite questions to ask guests is uh, what's something you're curious about recently before we uh, conclude? Something I'm curious about lately. It's a good question. Um, I've been really interested in the uh, discovery of these new uh, ostrich eggs that they just found in the Negev desert on the Egyptian okay. border of Israel. They date to around seven to 8,000 years. But we're trying to, you know, they're trying to understand how the domestication of ostriches occurred. And right now I'm kind of going down the whole rabbit hole of trying to understand how that happened myself. So <laughs> that's one of the things I'm really curious about is, you know, how early humans domesticated ostriches. So what's, what's something uh, you learned from it? Uh, well, I mean, I just started learning about this. Like I just okay. read the article earlier today, but um, yeah, I mean, we've been eating ostrich eggs for like 8,500 years. So pretty, pretty exciting. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, this has been great. Thanks so much for uh, coming back on, Tim. Always, always a pleasure and a delight talking with you. <laughs> always, man. Uh, I appreciate this. If you're ever in LA, we got to grab a drink. For sure. Thank you. Or a coffee. I know a good spot. It's a Swedish cafe in a uh, art deco building that knock your socks off. If you want to see something cool, Google the uh, Eastern Columbia building. I know you'll probably get a kick out of that. <laughs>